not at all, not at all. Anything for old Seattle. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about dinner. Just a minute. Hattie, what's on the menu tonight? What do you think? Uh, don't tell me. I believe I could manage it. Yes, I'll try to get another girl. Eight o'clock, fine. Oh, what the well-dressed roommate will wear. Pardonnez-moi. Take a look, Henry. That's where you'll wind up if you don't behave yourself. If uh, your line isn't too busy tonight, I have a couple of lumber. Oh, no, no, don't. Don't mention the word lumber. I am dining tonight on face and bordelies with the peach fuzz dressing. Where is Bordelies? Uh, she doesn't even know what pheasant is. Naturally, there's a difference between pheasant and peasant. Oh, my friend wouldn't think of serving peasants. No, but he's willing to take them out once or twice. <laughs> but when he's through, he's through. That's what I love about my friend. It's one thing to borrow a friend's friend. It's another thing to hold him, if you know what I mean. Would you mind telling the ladies that I don't want to buy anything today? Goodbye, all, and when I return, I shall tell you how the other half lives. Nice meeting you. If it's not asking too much, let's not be late again. And lead the way, Higgins. You're listening to Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Mega McGurk. Take two stars with something to prove. Add a director who knew how to find the interior truth behind a studio image. Marinate in a script rich with tart wisecracks. Season with a cast of ambitious up-and-comers. And what do you have? Well, it isn't lamb stew. Stage Door is a stone-cold classic where every woman wants her name in lights. Marriage is a consolation prize and the only expectant mother is Henry the Cat. Stage Door is a modern fable about ambition and showbiz, from the king of women's pictures, Gregory LaCava. By the mid-1930s, LaCava bristled under the studio system, which made the producer the highest authority on a picture. The producer-led formula was designed to meet the front office's bottom line, minimize costs, keep on schedule, and control the cast and crew. Irving Thalberg and Louis B. Mayer implemented the producer-in-charge system at MGM after repeated losses and messy encounters with director Eric von Stroheim. But LaCava forged a different path. W.C. Field said his friend was his favorite director because he was brilliant and the most thorough workman in anything he attempted. Maury Riskin, a screenwriter on both My Man Godfrey and Stage Door, noted that LaCava's remarkable sense of comic timing and his refined flair for improvisation made him the finest comedy director he had ever worked with. In the studio system, directors were supposed to adhere to a script as if it came out of a burning bush. Any changes a director wanted to make had to be formally approved by the front office. But LaCava rankled under that method, and so did Leo McCary. Both men cultivated a spontaneous process where a script developed during production. They argued that writing it as you went along drew the best from ensemble players. The extemporaneous method was innovative and suited the new picture techniques on a soundstage. The front office hated the improv style because it removed their control and many stars trembled at the fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants routine. LaCava, like McCary, had apprenticed as a gag writer early in his career. LaCava went to art school, wrote cartoons for newspapers, and was a pioneer in animated films. Then he wrote bits of business for Richard Dix, who chose him as a director. LaCava further developed his comedic range by directing W.C. Fields. 
and training in comedy prepared him to launch a method that took risks but paid off in style. LaCava's improv style created natural performances. By making it up as he went along, LaCava was able to match the performer's personality with the character they played. LaCava isn't often recognized among the ranks of psychological directors like, say, Fritz Lang or Alfred Hitchcock. Since he was at heart a gag man, his mission was rooted in comedy. LaCava approached a soundstage like it was one big analyst's couch. It was a therapy session to reveal inner truths. It's funnier than it sounds. I might argue it began with Bed of Roses. When Constance Bennett discovers that she had a conscience after all, maybe it wasn't a good idea to fleece men for a living. She atones by working in a shop for five minutes and thus earns the right to be with Joel McRae. In Private Worlds, LaCava sought the humanity, which is often missing from state-subsidized psychiatric care. He even administered a personality test to star Claudette Colbert on set to rate her as either an introvert or extrovert. And she married her boss, again with Claudette. He explored the ways societal roles in commerce create households filled with repression, absent of desire. In My Man Godfrey, he hit upon the crushing invisibility that envelopes forgotten men. And Carol Lombard shows William Powell how to shed his rags and live again. In Primrose Path, LaCava argues that the family romance is a trap that dooms Ginger Rogers. In Unfinished Business, Irene Dunn escapes duty and honor long enough to have a fling with a random on a train. Nice girls want to get railed, too. Stage Door might be LaCava's most intricate psychological portrait. He was right to ditch the original script written by Edna Verber and George S. Kaufman for the stage. Kaufman's acerbic quick noted that the two scripts had so little in common by the end that the Hollywood version should have been titled Screen Door. The Broadway hit starring Margaret Sullivan was filled with platitudes about the importance of the stage over the vapid commercial arena of the film industry. Ferber and Kaufman wrote types who stick to their corners to an inevitable conclusion. The Hollywood version is no less electric and stunning today than it was when it premiered in 1937. RKO producer Pandro Berman had the bright idea to put the studio's biggest stars together. Berman saw the play on Broadway and knew it would be a publicity goldmine if he paired Ginger Rogers and Katharine Hepburn. Berman guessed correctly that Ginger and Kate would make it their mission to outshine each other. Both women had something to prove. In his review for the New York Times, Frank Nugent observed, Miss Hepburn and Miss Rogers in particular seemed to be acting so far above their usual heads that frankly, we hardly recognize them. Lacava applied his off-the-cuff writing style to the RKO production and he worked closely with screenwriters to flesh out the story and scenes once the shoot was underway. LaCava's method kept the performances natural because the actresses avoided too much rehearsal. Fresh dialogue was handed to the cast each day on set. Screenwriter Alan Scott, who worked with LaCava and Ginger on Fifth Avenue Girl, reported that LaCava always had backup dialogue around which he would hand out when things grew stale on set. 
In a Picture Goer magazine article from January 1938, LeCava refused to take the bait when the interviewer asked about a feud on set between the two stars. LaCava noted, almost every star I ever worked with has been recommended to me secretly as being extremely difficult to manage, but I have found that so-called temperament is just a higher form of intelligence. Screen stars who do not possess the emotional fire, sometimes labeled artistic temperament, aren't worth their salt. Nice girls, as we know the type, are rarely good actresses. There was no script at the start, nor were the parts or storylines nailed down. Everything was wide open, which fostered a creative atmosphere among hungry up-and-comers and stars alike. Ginger noted that each day on set, you never knew if the picture was going in your favor or how it would turn out. You couldn't be too comfortable. LaCava wanted to simulate the boarding house dynamic of the Footlights Club and had the women live together for two weeks before they faced the cameras. He eavesdropped on set listening to the banter among the young women. He had a secretary record their wisecracks by shorthand and later added them into the script. Within the studio system, the writer's job was often finished before the production started, but in LaCava's off-the-cuff method, the writers were present on set each day. Writers Maury Riskin and Anthony Veeler had a first-hand sense for melding their performers with the roles they played. LaCava's penchant for psychological dimension became a team effort, and as a result, the cast is emotionally amplified in front of the camera. And the cast is jam-packed with talent, and everyone received a career boost from this picture. Lucille Ball credited Leela Rogers with getting her the part in Screen Door. Leela had been Lucy's acting coach for two years in the little theater that she ran in RKO. The part in Stage Door was something of a graduation present for Lucy. Maury Riskin admitted that he fell in love with the sound of Lucy's voice during rehearsals and helped expand her role with more dialogue to give her an opportunity to shine. Ann Miller is one of many stars who began her career in showbiz as a child out of sheer economic necessity. She earned a living dancing when she was just 12 years old to support her mother who was deaf. While Anne danced in a nightclub, Lucille Ball showed up one night with Benny Rubin, a talent scout for RKO. Lucy told Benny that Anne should get a screen test that she could be the next Eleanor Powell. The only trouble was that Anne was underage. She was only 14. Anne's mother went to her estranged husband. He was a lawyer who provided no financial support to the women, but he did come through for them and delivered a forged birth certificate that changed Anne's year of birth from 1919 to 1923 so she could work in RKO. Anne noted that she also had Lucy to thank for the dance number she was given with Ginger Rogers in the picture. Initially, Ginger worried that Anne might be too tall. The teenager begged her idol, couldn't Ginger wear heels and a top hat, and she would wear a smaller hat and flat shoes? Ginger and LaCava weren't about to break her heart. One day, Anne caught the wardrobe women gossiping about the bus pads that they sewed into her costumes. They teased her about being flat-chested for weeks. Upset, Anne lost the run of herself and snapped that she was just a kid. She was only 14, and that's why she had a childish figure. Of course, the news leaked around the studio that Anne was underage. 
Pandro Berman vacillated between the fear of going to jail and the fear over extended production costs if the news leaked and remained calm. She handed Berman the fake birth certificate and lied through her teeth. Eve Arden had done a screen test for Universal Pictures. She did name the glamour gal who had the more favorable lighting and position in front of the camera during the test. Nothing panned out for Eve from the screen test, but then LaCava ordered it and he watched and he forgot all about the glamour girl in the front and he couldn't take his eyes off the woman in the background who stole the entire scene with her snappy dialogue. Then on set, Eve discovered a neat trick to stand out in a crowd of up-and-comers. She suggested that she could bring in her cat and carry him around. LaCava liked the idea. During rehearsals, she had this bit of business eating pecans and wanted her hands free. She improvised, putting Henry around her shoulders. LaCava got really excited. Will he stay like that, he asked. Eve wears a first stole with a pulse. When Katherine Hepburn joined the cast, she was used to dominating a set. She didn't know what to do initially when she was just one actress among many. She pressed the director for clarity about her character, Terry Randall. LaCava admitted that he didn't know. She was a human question mark, and that's as far as he would go. When Kate went to producer Pandro Berman and threw her weight around, he reminded her that her last three pictured had died at the box office. As far as he was concerned, she was lucky to get seventh billing. Ginger knew that she was considered a valuable draw at the box office, but she didn't have the allure or prestige that Kate had enjoyed as an Oscar winner. It was the ancient star versus actress card that people use when they compare women in Hollywood. Ginger needed to prove that she had the dramatic chops worthy of a serious actress, and she wasn't just Fred Astaire's dance partner. LaCava later showered praise on Ginger Rogers in that picture-goer interview. He said she had everything and had proven her talent for drama. LaCava shared the greatest tribute ever paid on set by a cameraman, he said. After Ginger finished the scene in Kate's dressing room on opening night, where she tells her Kay is dead, a cameraman on set, obviously moved, declared simply, throw away those dancing shoes. Ginger and Kate had completely different backgrounds. Ginger went to work when she was 16, like her mother. Kate went to Bryn Mawr, like her mother. But when Ginger and Kate were cast in stage door, they had more in common than the differences in their class backgrounds. The fickleness of stardom applied to both women. Each had something to prove. They were both careerists who put themselves first. They chose their clippings over lovers or children, just like the characters they played in Stage Door. Kate retained a mystery about her lovers throughout her life. Was Laura Harding her true love, or was it Spencer Tracy? And Ginger looked like butter went melt in her mouth, but in the 1930s, she broke a lot of conventions about appropriate behavior for women. Jack Carson noted in a late interview that after he spent a passionate weekend with Ginger in New York, she wouldn't even take his phone calls. And it took an intervention from her mother for Ginger to end her red-hot love affair with married director George Stevens. If we want to understand Ginger Rogers and her performance as Jean Maitland, we could start with her mother's influence. 
For some film historians, Leela Rogers is the quintessential stage mother, a harpy who, who tormented the poor men who worked in the studio system. In reality, Leela was a trailblazer who was independent years before women won the vote. At 16, she left school and worked as a stenographer. Leela worked office jobs and dreamed of becoming a writer. And Leela didn't abandon her dreams once she had a child like many other women were forced to do. In 1917, Leela won a story contest, which led to a job writing scenarios in a film studio. She worked as a freelance writer in New York for film studios until she moved to Washington to do her bit for the war. During the First World War, Leela made training films for the U.S. Armed Forces. She mastered key areas of production in the educational film series. She wrote the titles, directed them, and edited the films. After Armistice, Leela branched out into journalism. She was a newspaper woman in Dallas as an arts critic. After Ginger won a Charleston dance contest in 1926, which included a month-long tour in vaudeville, Leela quit her job as a reporter and devoted herself to building her daughter's showbiz career. Leela instilled an early lesson, work hard and be devoted to your career. Ginger was determined to be a star. She worked like a dog, making one picture after another, with hardly any time off. She was wildly underestimated by the men in Hollywood. Once a picture in the Astaire Rogers franchise wrapped, Fred would sail for a long holiday. Ginger, on the other hand, started on a new production the following day. Leela argued that Ginger's work ethic paid off in terms of her versatility and her longevity in showbiz. On set with a stare, Ginger proved herself willing to meet the high standards of a tough perfectionist. On more than one occasion, she danced until her feet bled. An easy day with a stare meant only eight hours of rehearsal, but often a normal day stretched to 10 or 12 hours. Fred later noted that Ginger never complained and was a true professional who met his expectations. Yet Ginger had to fight her corner every step of the way with the front office and her colleagues on set. Executives treated her like a stairs flunky. Ginger found out one day that supporting player Edward Everett Horton, who appeared in The Gay Divorcee and Top Hat, earned twice her salary. Horton was a great performer, but his name didn't sell the tickets. She had to fight for fair pay when her name was the one bringing in box office receipts. Ginger had a constant struggle with director Mark Sandrich, who preferred to shoot the back of her head and was stingy with close-ups. Even Fred was often adversarial, making jokes at her expense in front of the cast and crew. Their battle over the blue ostrich feather gown and top hat is legendary. She was always expected to subordinate her artistic vision to a stairs or some suit in the front office. For years, RKO treated her like she was just a dance contest winner with a tin cup in her hand. More than anything, she needed to prove that she had range and could handle a meaty dramatic role. In Stage Door with 43 pictures under her belt, Ginger worried that the executives were going to throw roses at Hepburn's feet. Ginger noted in her memoir that Pandro Berman would have given Kate Vine Street had she asked for it. Ginger felt it was a test. She thought, would I overcome her silent ridicule of me or melt into the scenery like a chocolate bar? 
When does your baggage get here? I'm expecting the bulk of it in the morning. We could leave the trunks here and sleep in the hall. There's no use crowding the trunks. I don't know what we're going to do when the wolfhounds arrive. I hope you don't mind animals. Oh, not at all. I roomed with a great many of them before. Yes, I can see that. Fresh kill? Yes, I trapped them myself. Do you mind if I ask a personal question? Another one? Are these trunks full of bodies? Just those, but I don't intend to unpack them. Well, I was just thinking if the room got too crowded, we could live in the trunks. Yes, that's a good idea. You don't mind helping me unpack. Oh, I beg your pardon, you're not the maid, are you? Oh, that's quite all right. Thank what you. a lovely dress. Whipped up at home by loving hands. Huh? Every stitch. Do you cook too? Nothing fancy, just plain home cooking. I bet you could boil a terrific pan of water. I imagine that half that bureau's mine. You don't mind if I put this here, do you? Why not? Help scare the moths away. Oh, a friend of the family? Happens to be my grandfather. Grandfather? Well, there is quite a family resemblance, especially around the whiskers. That's a fairly intelligent observation for you. I must say he's a fairly generous old guy. His grandfather's go. He always treated me very well. I suppose if you'd had your choice, you'd picked a much younger grandfather. I see that in addition to your other charms, you have that insolence generated by an inferior upbringing. Hmm. Fancy clothes, fancy language and everything. Unfortunately, I learned to speak English correctly. I won't be of much use to you here. We all talk pig Latin. And I use the right knife and fork. I hope you don't mind. All you need is the knife. Do you mind if I hang these things here? Temporarily, of course. I must take my bath. That might help. And remember, half the wardrobe is yours. And if anything of mine should get in the way, we'll just toss it out the window. <laughs> Ginger doesn't melt into the scenery. She lobs hard-boiled wisecracks in every direction. She puts the rich gal on notice by spoofing a Bryn Mawr accent, cracks wise about Hepburn's family tree, and sails out of the room on the last word. The best part is that it only makes the roommate with deep pockets want to know more. Quick with the comebacks, Ginger plays a gal you want in your corner. Throughout the picture, Ginger appears relieved that she doesn't have to smile or, God forbid, have anyone singing at her. She has a glorious acid delivery, from the opening scene where she threatens Gal Patrick, who stole her silk stockings. Ginger proves her dramatic chops. She's a tough cookie who softens first when she gets some ermine on her shoulders and struts around like a Hattie Carnegie mannequin. Eventually, Ginger melts for the love of her comrades in the trenches of showbiz. It's a wonder we don't see her bite marks on the screen, Ginger sinks her teeth in and never lets go. If we want to understand Katherine Hepburn and her performance as Terry Randall, we could start with the day when she was 14 and found her beloved brother Tom dead. He was 16 when he hanged himself. Finding her spiritual twin brother dead had a traumatic impact and it changed her life. Kate vowed she would live his life for him as well as her own. Or we could go back to 1932, when Hepburn signed with RKO, David O. Selznick remarked that she looked like a cross between a horse and a monkey. And Kate won an Oscar for Morning Glory, her third picture she made under contract with the studio, yet she still had to fight the male opinion of what a star should be or look like. At the end of 1933, top Broadway producer Jed Harris asked Kate to play the lead in The Lake. She dreamed of returning to New York in a blaze of glory, hot off her Oscar win. 
Kate knew Jed Harris socially, mostly for when she accommodated him with, you know, driving him around in her car. But she never worked with him during her time on the boards. The way Kate recalled it in her memoir, once she said yes, she stepped into a trap without knowing it. As she put it, the lake was a slow walk to the gallows. Jed was a notorious bully who traumatized Kate and then left the production while she flailed about on stage. He took perverse pleasure in destroying a Hollywood star who turned down his sexual overtures. After rehearsals began for the lake, Jed sacked the director. From the moment he took over, Jed systematically attacked each one of Hepburn's creative choices. If she sat, he wanted her to stand. How she moved, how she spoke, everything was wrong. He made unreasonable demands, like expecting her to learn how to play the piano for one scene in the play, and that was with her back to the audience. Kate's instinct for the role was destroyed, and her confidence went with it. For weeks, Jed terrorized her with insults and bad direction. By opening night, Kate was shattered. She walked through the part like a zombie. When Kate felt the audience's attention slide away from her, she began to panic. She lost the last shred of confidence she had as a performer. On stage, her voice rose higher and higher in a fevered pitch. Reviews for The Lake were unkind. Brooks Atkinson for the New York Times noted that her voice was strident and felt her stagecraft was underwhelming next to the work she had done in front of the camera. He talked about her like she were a novice. Dorothy Parker gave what might be considered the worst review of Hepburn's career when she noted, go to Martin Beck and see K.H. run the gamut of emotion from A to B. Kate hit rock bottom. In two years, she had soared to the height of Hollywood stardom with an Oscar and then sunk to public laughing stock on Broadway. She dragged herself through the production. Finally, one night, a woman appeared backstage. She introduced herself as a singer. Her name was Susan Steele. She said she could help her to control her voice. Kate all but fell into her arms. The singer coached Kate out of the hole Jed Harris had put her in, and gradually Kate recovered enough confidence to finish the run of the play. And just when she felt she might survive, news spread among the cast that Jed planned to tour the production. Kate phoned him, bewildered. He was ice cold when he replied, The only interest I have in you is the money I can make out of you. Kate asked how much it would cost her to get a release from the contract. Jed asked, How much money have you got? Kate had almost $14,000 in the bank. He took it. She sent a check the next morning. Kate learned a valuable lesson from the lake. She would never again let anyone know when she was terrified. No matter what happened, she would keep a cool head at least on the outside. And that resolve became the bulletproof exterior Kay wore for the rest of her career. Kate swans into the Footlights Club with a couple of trunks, a fancy clothes, and a highbrow lecture. To gossip, but that new gal seems to have an awful crush on Shakespeare. I wouldn't be surprised if they got married. Oh, you're fooling. Shakespeare's dead. No. Well, if he's the same one that wrote Hamlet, he is. Never heard of it. Well, certainly you must have heard of Hamlet. Well, I meet so many people. Hang on to your chairs, girls. We're going to get another load of Shakespeare. 
Is it against the rules of the house to discuss the classics? No, go right ahead. I won't take my sleeping pill tonight. It might interest you girls to know that all great actresses knew their Shakespeare. How about their onions? I fail to see what onions have to do with Shakespeare. If you'd listen to Miss Randall, you might learn something. I like Amos and Andy. In my day, we were not only actresses, we were technicians. We learnt our trade from the ground up. That's what we should have. A trade. I want to be a Swiss bell ringer. I want to do something with my hands. Sit on them. You'd get further with your feet, they're bigger. The trouble with you is you're all trying to be comics. Don't you ever take anything seriously? After you've sat around for a year trying to get a job, you won't take anything seriously either. Well, do you have to just sit around and do nothing about it? Maybe it's in the blood. My grandfather sat around till he was 80. Well, my grandfather didn't. And if he and a lot of others hadn't crossed the country in a covered wagon, there'd still be Indians living in Wichita. Who do you think's living there now? Talk about starting on the wrong foot. Kate's character shares platitudes about the grand tradition of the theater, but she's blind to the drama her roommates experience. Chronic unemployment, scrounging for meals and clothes, and not even getting five minutes with a producer to find out whether you've got any talent takes its toll. Poor Kay, played by Andrea Leeds, hasn't booked a job in a year and is slowly, quietly starving. Viewers know that Terry Randall has something to learn about life. Terry's epiphany happens on stage. For the scene, Kate channels the pain she experienced into her performance. She she transferred the grief of Tom's suicide and the plot into the plot about Kay's suicide. Kate recalled, I'm not a method actress, but when that dear girl in the film commits suicide, I was moved and I couldn't help but be thinking of Tom. I understood Kay's disappointment, but I never understood what disappointed Tom or even if anything did. LaCava chose lines from the lake for the scene where Kate makes her stage debut on the night of Kay's suicide. And most likely, LaCava knew that the dialogue from Kate's biggest professional failure would make her vulnerable. And that feeling would take on new meaning once the cameras rolled. Hepburn repeated the lines earlier in the film and shows the audience the process of acting, of how the words come to life by the performer. Kate also shows us the woman behind the mask of stardom when she talks about the calla lilies. She lets her guard down and gives us her private grief. The calla lilies are in bloom again. Such a strange flower, suitable to any occasion. I carried them on my wedding day and now I place them here in memory of something that has died. He needs a good thrashing. You poor child. Have you gathered here to mourn or are you here to bring me comfort? Oh, how could a girl like you fall in love with a man like that? I've learned something about love that I never knew before. That I never knew before. You speak of love when it's too late. Years later, Kate recalled of LaCava's decision to use the lines from her stage disaster. It was a brilliant idea because it allowed me to take my most miserable moment in the theater and turn it into something fun. LaCava uses a keen gift of perception for what Kate needed. All the money and fancy education in the world can't protect you from having your heart broken. 
It's the heartbreak that creates an artist, just as Constance Collier tells Kate backstage before the curtain and stage door. Oftentimes, when we talk about competition between stars, it devolves into a story of a catfight, a contest of backstabbing, petty squabbles, and one-upmanship. If we take the feud angle, one star usually comes on top at the expense of another. And aren't Hollywood feuds old hat by now? Ultimately, what does it get us? Instead of rehashing the well-known story of the feud between Ginger and Kate, I want to take a different approach. Let's start with the mink coat story. In Ginger's memoir, she tells a story now enshrined in film star history. In Ginger's version, after she purchased her first mink coat, she wore it to the studio. While Ginger was modeling her coat outside on the lot, George Stephen was in an office on the second floor of the director's building. He leaned out and asked Ginger about her new coat. Then Kate stuck her head out of the window and asked Ginger about it. Kate disappeared. Then she returned and poured a glass of water on Ginger and her new coat and said, if it's real mink, it won't shrink. Readers will naturally side with Ginger, as I did when I first read this who in the version of the story becomes the plucky working girl bullied by the Ivy League brat who was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. But what if that's not what really happened? A reporter debunked the story back in 1937. In the November 1937 edition of Modern Screen Magazine, Faith Service visited Rogers and Hepburn at RKO during the production of Stage Door. Service begins the column by indirectly calling out sexism in media coverage. When male stars like Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy work together, it's reported as creative collaboration between top-tier professionals. But when two women get together, it's red alert and battle stations. The columnist addresses rumors of strife on set. Gossip alleged that Ginger and Kate fought, fought over lines in the script, publicity stills, costumes, billing, and even what should be served at the daily four o'clock tea break. Service noted that during a visit on set, she watched while Ginger and Kate had a stack of publicity stills to approve. Ginger passed on a few that she didn't look at closely. Kate pointed them out and asked if Ginger was sure because, you know, she wasn't just looking out for herself. She was also looking out for Ginger. Service observed this pair sitting around the studio together reading magazines, each with an all-day sucker in her mouth. And when Service arrived at the studio, Kate was behind the wheel of her Ford, barreling around the lot, with Ginger standing on the running board, both women laughing their heads off. The story about Ginger's mink pops up in Faith Service's Modern Screen article. Service notes that the story about Kate pouring water on Ginger's mink was well known. But Service investigated and found out that it wasn't Kate who dumped the water on Ginger's mink coat. A producer threw a paper cup that had a little bit of water in it out of the office window. The cup hit Ginger, who stood below, and when it fell, Ginger wasn't cross. She reportedly looked up and said, it's real mink, it won't shrink. Now, it's easy to understand how the story changed from producer litters to society dame snubs working class co-star. It makes a good story. 
it's easy to see why Ginger preferred this version for her memoir. She hits two birds with one stone. She gets to take a poke at a rival and an ex-lover. Columnists and fans tend to choose sides. I wouldn't exactly say Ginger and Kate were pals and sometimes dinner companions, as Faith Service does in her article. But instead of using the feud language, I'm drawn by the way their rivalry spurred them on. Ginger and Kate rose to the challenge, and the chemistry between them brought out their best work. The production was a tide that lifted everybody's boats. Instead of looking for who got the better, we should notice how they brought out the best in each other. Thanks so much for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Ginger, My Story by Ginger Rogers, published in 1991. Ginger, Loretta, and Irene Hu by George Eagles, published in 1976. Me, Stories of My Life by Katherine Hepburn, published in 1991. I Know Where I'm Going, Katherine Hepburn, A Personal Biography by Charlotte Chandler, published in 2010. Miller's High Life by Ann Miller, published in 1972. Love, Lucy by Lucille Ball, published in 1996. Three Phases of Eve by Eve Arden, published in 1985. I Shot an Elephant in My Pajamas by Maury Riskin and John Roberts, published in 1994. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned for Hollywood Medusa, a new three-part series to Sassmouth Dames.